freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Well, so many surprises here on on this hot July day in, at least for me in New Jersey. Where are you guys, Michael? Where are you guys? We, we are in Tennessee. We recently fled Mussolini's hellscapes, uh, Gamora <laughs> by the sea. And uh, so now we're in the land of the free. And that explains the sweater then, because it's, it's obviously much colder. No, I know actually that the television studios uh, can, can, can be chilly places, especially for a skinny boy. For a skinny boy. That's my that's official right. title. <laughs> that's right. Which I relinquished to Michael, by the way. So everyone by now is on to what's going on here. So first of all, two things. One is that we've got Michael Knowles, the renaissance man of what was it? I keep forgetting of something. Of, of podcasting or of whatever it is you do. Whatever. I'll take it. I'm not quite sure. That's why they say Renaissance man. That's like, uh, you know, yeah, he does a little of this and a little of that, you know, a little. Well, I had a friend in college who was very insulted because one of our other friends said, you know, David, you, you do like everything, but you don't do anything for, like really, really well. <laughs> yeah. And some, for some reason, David, who became actually a very, very good orthopedic surgeon, uh, didn't take it very well to it. <laughs> Look, it's this is the Coleman Nation. I don't know, Michael, if you picked up on the um, on, on the on the pun, uh, the, the last podcast ever, culmination, um, end of the world kind of tones. <laughs> We're doing the first ever video here because when we came online, I always like to say hi to my guests by video, especially someone like Michael, who with whom I have only interacted and even then politely. Um, on Twitter before. We've never met in person. Uh, so, you know, say hi, and then I can claim that I know him. Um, and then we saw that, as I put it, they were shellacking his hair. And <laughs> I just have to warn you, Michael, that's, it doesn't, that's not gonna... <laughs> it doesn't stay. It doesn't. <laughs> Believe me, in the 70s, the things that, that I put on my hair, well, <laughs> um, <laughs> So we, so we decided to, to, to make this our first ever experiment with, um, with video um, podcasting. And I thank you very much for being, for being my guest. And I, because you are actually a, a person who's, who does all kinds of things, and it, it is actually fascinating to me. You had a, an act, a background in acting. I was also a college actor, although I didn't go to a college that had an acting major. Not that my parents would have let me major in acting in a million. Right. In fact, even being successful in acting at Princeton scared the hell out of them. Yeah. But uh, you seem to be very comfortable in, you know, in front of the camera. Well, you know, I, I always enjoyed acting and I always enjoyed politics. And I really started in them both around the same time. I, too, uh, would, would not have majored in acting. I, I felt that was a great way to sort of set a lot of money on fire. So I, I majored in history and, and Italian literature, much more practical, useful majors. Uh, but I did do a lot of acting and I, I acted professionally a bit 
after college, uh, but please don't hold it against me. And, uh, but it is how I found my way to Hollywood. I was out there doing, you know, very low budget sorts of movies and things and uh, found my way into this circle of these misfits in Hollywood who were, we called ourselves the Friends of Abe. And it was those, you know, in, in the 50s, you had the Friends of Dorothy if you were gay and you were, you know, and now you have the Friends of Abe if you're a Republican in Hollywood because you've got to be very secret. And Abe, uh, Abe what, Abe Lincoln? Abe Lincoln. And, uh, oh, so, so you're also gay. Yeah. That's true. That's true. We called it the log cabin. I don't know what it was. And, uh, but we did, you know, and that was kind of how we hooked up with the, uh, with Jeremy and Ben and Andrew Clavin and the daily wire was sort of born out of that. Wow. That is the, that's what, cause you, and you're actually, you're, you're a voice actor. I, yes, I, I joke that the only people who ever hire me as an actor anymore are Andrew Clavin and Ted Cruz. Those are the ones that I, I continue. So I do enjoy doing that. I read my own book, Speechless, recently. I've read some books for Andrew Clavin, his audio book. And the, the thing I really like about audio books, by the way, compared to movies or TV or plays or something, is it, it's a real job. It's like an actual job with requirements and hours that you work, whereas, you know, movies can be the craziest Oh, you thing mean audio, audio book gigs? Yes. <laughs> Wait, should, so should Michael Malice have paid me? For, oh, I'm not, I'm not, but I'm not union. I, I just read a chapter for his book. Oh, and terrific. Pro, but you know, he's, he's a little bit insane. Yeah. And <laughs> the further I got into this chapter, which, which I found very intriguing, it was, a, it was about the legal regime and about what, it was like this highly legal realism-y thing. And the more I got into it, the more I hated what the guy was saying. And I, but I have to start. But I have to still be in character. And I actually have a background in college radio. This is not about me talking about me. But I do like to connect with my guests, and we can't connect about hair um, or Italian literature. Um, so I have a background in radio, and I also took voice professional voice lessons in a vain attempt to get out of the legal profession many years ago. So he got me to do this 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 chapter, and I had to stay in character. You know and being still an enthusiastic believer in what I was saying, even as the two hour, you know, you know, like you start, you know this, how long can you go before you, well, you'll see when you're old, you, you dry out a lot faster. I know, eventually you run out. I, I actually, I studied back when I was a, a young actor, a wee lad, I was studying with this very legendary acting coach. He was a famous teacher named Wynne Hanman. And he, at the time he was 92, he lived to be 97 or 98. And, uh, you know, I mean, this guy was Frank Langella's acting teacher. Frank Langella's, you know, himself a thousand years older. But going, even, you know, even further, he directed Myrna Loy and all of these sorts of crazy people. And he, he was legendary in that virtually any really serious major star actor uh, around these days for the past 50 years studied with this guy. And, you know, really serious people that I admired. And I was in his studio and we were chatting one day and he said, Michael, you, you gotta, you, you're, you're too interested in being smart. He said, to be an actor, you have to be a gullible fool. And he meant it. He wasn't being insulting. He really loved actors, but you have to be very suggestible to the circumstances of the play or of the, of the movie. And I think it, this is actually why Ronald Reagan famously was asked, can an actor be president? He said, how can an actor, how can the president not be an actor? And uh, what, what he's saying is that politicians too need to be suggestible. They need to be reacting to real circumstances that are changing. They have to like people, you know, and like, enjoy what makes people tick. And so I, I do think there are a lot of similarities there. I think you're right. And I, 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 I also, there's a certain amount of ego that 
let's call just a touch. Let's in those call it self possession. Okay, <laughs> let's call it self. Because sometimes people say to me in a in, in fits of of, of uh, charity, Robert, why, why don't you run for office? And I say, can you just imagine talking about yourself? even more than someone who's on Twitter with 135,000 followers does, yeah. right? <laughs> and, and, and referring to yourself in the third person, I'm like Bob Dole yeah. kind of a little bit overdid it, but, but you just actually also touched on something else that I found. For somehow, for some reason, by the way, the theme of the podcast is the theme of your book. But now that I know we have much more time than I thought, the book is Speechless yeah. by Michael <laughs> Knowles, available at fine booksellers everywhere. We'll, we'll talk about that, believe me. Somehow I found myself on a sleepless night because I do have the weight of the world on my shoulders, as Michael. Yeah. Um, reading about the life of Burt Reynolds. Okay. And he really presents an interesting, he wasn't as dumb as the celebrity Jeopardy um, yeah. depiction would suggest. You're right. But it seems to be a real question as to how serious of an actor he actually, I mean, you're hearing him, I mean, having taken some actor acting when I was in college, I know, you know, the, the, the words the you know, the being in the moment and the truth, uh, the, you know, all the, the kind of keys, you know, the methods, the method talk. And he clearly was a professional and clearly took, but you know, he, the way he pissed away his career in yeah. endless car chase movies which you how, you can't take anyone serious then but then he comes back and, and and has this last moment as a porn film director I, just there was something about that sincerity that really registered with me because i, I was always puzzled by him and when i was growing up he was he was really the man he was so yeah. absolutely the man and i because obviously identified with him very much <laughs> so, so don't we all <laughs> you know just one michael you you are all over the place and you seem and, and you have you seem to have a great deal of energy and, and so much to say about what's going on but the what you've chosen to focus on and the reason i thought that you'd be a good guest for this besides the fact that you're charming and handsome and, and young and go and, on yeah. <laughs> so you take that what won't you take actually yeah um, is that you? Is that you, you? You decided of all the things that are going on, to write about political correctness, and and I was struggling with this because now that I've done fourteen or so episodes of this brand new podcast, I'm starting to what what I actually what I have been happy to hear is that most of my guests, and I've had some pretty snazzy guests is that I'm hearing different things from a lot of them. And even when I, I was on Tim Pool's show two weeks ago, I'm going to just drop so many names. Just <laughs> yeah. to try to you know, um, maybe you know my friend Barack Obama. <laughs> Have you heard it? Well, I sh well Michelle, yeah, I would never Michelle, call him a friend. Michelle, <laughs> but Michelle was in my class. Oh, that Princeton, right? Class of 85, but yeah. by virtue of being an African-American, we never saw each other because by that time already, wow. most African-American students at Princeton were self-segregating very intensely. Huh. Wow. And we never, no, no, inter, no interaction whatsoever. Um, in any event, um, what I was saying was about the speech that people have different perspectives, are saying a lot of different things about this. And when I, 
I was kind of looking for the hook on Michael Knowles. You know, like, what's going to be his take on this? What's going to be? And, and what what I have found, by the way, in my research is that in the course or in my experiences doing this, is that I'll do a little bit of research, and I do mean a very little bit of research. Yeah. Inevitably, what my guests are, have to say about this topic is not what I expected. It, it, yeah. Because people who have gone through the trouble of writing a whole book and even putting a picture on the front of it. I know. <laughs> Look at that. Have really, I mean, you probably spent uh, like weeks on this thing, right? Oh, I spent hours. You know, at <laughs> least, I mean, nearly well, a day. Yeah. I mean, all the all that cutting and pasting. <laughs> <laughs> You're a unique person with a unique background, and of course, you started with the Italian Renaissance aspects of this, I'm sure, in order to draw on your, you know, on your background. Look, we're liberal arts graduates. Okay? We don't believe that you go to college. I mean, maybe you'll tell me differently. I still think that when I went to college in the '80s, you got a liberal arts education, and it was a liberal arts education. I'm yeah. an economics major. Yep. I cannot balance my checkbook, right. but. It's an excellent preparation for, a, in fact, in, in, there was a number of studies that economics majors are like the best prepared undergraduates among non-scientists. You know, I'm so glad to hear you say this because it, it really does drive me up a wall. Look, I agree the universities are terrible. They've been utterly hollowed out. They are just tools of the liberal regime. They probably need to be broken into rubble and have the earth salted underneath them. But... I sometimes hear conservatives say that if you go to college, you should only go to college if you major in engineering or some, or some very practical major. And I think, what are you talking about? The, the conservative view, I mean, the, the kind of the beating heart of conservatism that passes it along is a liberal education. It's the humanities. It's understanding what our civilization is and cultivating that which is best to make sense of our, our freedom. And William F. Buckley never would have said that, besides the fact that he criticized Yale. And it came into the public eye criticizing the way the liberal academy treated the Western canon yeah. and all the things that fill the lives of Michael Knowles as a profession and Ron Coleman as an avocation. He nonetheless would. But then again, he died before he had to see any of the st stuff that goes on in the name of his alma mater. Yeah. You know, that that book, I think, is important, too, because I was just rereading it. Uh, I'm, I've got a, an introduction to it coming out and there's, it's the 70th oh, cool. anniversary this year that that's coming. It'll come out in a couple of months. And so I, you know, I ha hadn't revisited it in quite some time. And you, you really forget these days, given how far even the conservatives have moved left, you kind of forget what a serious man Bill Buckley was. And everyone remembers the title. The title is God and Man at Yale. Very few people remember the subtitle, which is the superstitions of academic freedom. And he puts academic freedom in quotes. And he, in that book, he refers to academic freedom as a hoax. He says it's not a real thing. It's just a, basically a tool that the left uses to hollow out the educational standards and, and put, reset them in their own favor. He says the Yale sociology department would never hire a neo-Nazi to lecture on the superiority of the Aryan man, nor should they. Universities have a mission. There's a difference between true and false and right and wrong. And, and this is true, I think, throughout the culture. It's actually one of the things that I, I really, really struck me writing this book, Speechless, was we have bought so much of the left's sloganeering on be it academic freedom or on free speech absolutism or, or what have you. And we've totally abandoned 
our standards. We've totally abandoned the idea that education is actually coercive and it actually is guiding you to cultivating your rational will and tamping down your base passions and, and uh, really uh, elevating yourself into a true liberty that requires limits. So I had a, a discussion along those lines with Saurabh Amari last week, who, somewhat like you, but from a very different background, yeah. came to Catholicism. Now you came back to Catholicism, as yeah. I came back to Judaism. So we had a lot to talk about, about this idea that, I hardly ever do this, but I found a, a quote from you in one of your videos. And I, and I watched like a total of 46 seconds of your entire, <laughs> your entire <laughs> yeah. oeuvre. oeuvre. Yeah. That's French, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Free speech in the abstract means absolutely nothing to people who have nothing to say. Yeah. You nailed it. You nailed it. Yeah. Because these people, and this is something that, that Mrs. Coleman and I are, are, are always talking about, what we're fighting is nihilism. Yeah. It's nihilism. And it's so, and one of the advantages they have besides the ruthlessness and the, and besides the, the institutional meth, all the things, again, that we're, we're also tired of hearing ourselves talk about, is that it is so much easier to destroy than to build. Yeah. And this is a theme in, I mean, the, the Western tradition and the Judeo Christian tradition have always been vulnerable to that because whenever you're trying to whenever you're trying to build something it's easy to throw rocks at it and it's easy to second guess it and, but I, I realized many years you know internet polemics have been like back in the blogging days was just something I, I was instantly found a way to ruin my life yeah. with the internet and one of the things I started realizing was that every almost everyone who had a criticism of some kind of institution or philosophy virtually never had anything like a coherent alternative in mind. Yeah. Yeah. What do we do about that here? It's <laughs> what I mean, they're not going to become. So I asked this question to, 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 to him and I, you may have the same answer. You might have a different one. Um, the whole thing about culture upstream, uh, right. The Breitbart maxim. Yeah. People aren't going to become religious believers, are they? And if they, they what, what's going to be? What's the deal? My, my answer might be slightly different than So Rob. I talk about So Rob in this book, and actually he was kind enough to blurb this book. Uh, but my answer might be s slightly more modest. You know, he, he has an excellent line in that essay where he was attacking David French. And he has a great line where he says, you know, ultimately we need to recognize that society will be oriented toward some conception of the good and, uh, you know, ultimately toward the highest good. So when, for instance, uh, to, to get to the David French Sorab debate, when David says that Drag Queen Story Hour is one of the blessings of liberty, first of all, you can hear James Madison rolling over in his grave. But, but second of all, I, you, I knew I heard, I knew that yeah, was the little rumble in the back. <laughs> and so I guess David's argument, the most charitable read I can take on it is if we tell drag queens, that they can't twerk for little toddlers at the library, why then they might tell us that we can't go to church on Sunday. And first of all, just as a practical matter, they already told us this. And actually, <laughs> you know, as, as is often the case, the Jews bore a little more of the brunt of this. In New York, you had de Blasio and Cuomo threatening to permanently shut down synagogues if, if Jews kept showing up to I their I sued services. them both. I sued yeah. them both. 
So, I mean, this is, this was practically speaking, they're already doing it. But, but moreover, if you really believe that we cannot discern between a pervert twerking for three-year-olds and showing up to church on Sunday, if you, if you truly believe that, and you're not just spouting off like a freshman philosophy major, but you, you know, you really believe that you do not possess the faculties of reason or the moral conscience to discern even that clarity between right and wrong and true and false and good and bad. Okay. Then you at least need to acknowledge that self-government is not possible because self-government requires those faculties of reason and moral conscience. We, we must be able to do that. And so then the question becomes, how does one, uh, have a society that at least recognizes that there's such a thing as truth and goodness and beauty and virtue. And there is the Catholic integralist answer, which I'm, I'm not knocking at all. I, I think it's a perfectly coherent answer, which is submit to pontifex, you know, and uh, we'll have the empire of Our Lady of Guadalupe in the Americas and then it'll all work out. Okay. I, you know, would that it were so simple to quote that, that movie, Hail Caesar, one of the most conservative movies and such a faith-filled movie of the last decade. Short of that though, if, if we're not going to get that just yet, what about the virtue of prudence? This is a virtue we are not allowed to discuss anymore. It's the, it's a, sort of the conservative virtue, but we're now told, no, if it doesn't, if your vision of politics is not a five point ideology that you can write on the back of a napkin, then it won't be good enough for me. It needs to be clear. Well, my friend, Father George Rutler says, shallows are clear. Shallow thinking is clear. Prudence is something that's a little bit murkier. We're learning from the wisdom of the ages. We're, we're learning from what has worked in the past, what has worked to give us this free speech regime in America. That's not absolute. It's not pie in the sky. It has certain limits, but gosh, darn it. I like the way it's worked. I think if we can draw on that practical experience and our prudence, I think we will have a chance to steer the ship of state a little bit more in the right direction. And the ideologues on the left and right will yell and cry and scream, but uh, that's good. That means we're doing something right. Well, you know, I recently had the occasion to pick up a book that had been in my bookshelf forever. I had originally bought it with the intention. So it's a little book. Yeah. by Charles Murray, and it's about being a curmudgeon, curmudgeon's guide to something. And it's, it's meant to be a book of advice for young people yeah. getting their first jobs and how to get, you know, how to deal with curmudgeons such as, such as Charles Murray. And I ended up not asking, recommending that my sons read the book because is so completely inapplicable to them in their cultural milieu. It just was, it's just so irrelevant. They, it, yeah. I would, it would require me another, like a, a half hour YouTube just to, just to explain <laughs> why. But I read it, so I read it myself. It was a really fast read. And one of the things he says is, he's not what you'd call a man of faith as such. Yeah. But he said, he recognized that our society is built on faith, on creed, and that there's a certain stability and humility that comes with attaching yourself to the faith tradition that's somehow relevant to your culture. And he started attending meetings with his wife, who was a Quaker. And he has not become a Quaker, but he has said, I've been surprised at how much of it has seeped in and how much of it has, be, has become meaningful to me. 
And you know what he was telling these young readers was, you have been told since, well, even before college, what a joke religion is and yeah. people of faith are. And you must appreciate something that you're probably not, they're not gonna tell you, but I'm gonna tell you. People like Michael Knowles are out there who are pretty sharp themselves. <laughs> And who've thought about this and who are nonetheless, you know, and William F. Buckley, if I can, if you'll yeah. excuse me, the, the comparison, St. William, <laughs> right? patron saint of, 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 of cultural conservatives. That's right. Yes, I know. I've been trying to work on my accent, but it's not, I don't quite have that. I'm a little too Italian for the mid-Atlantic accent. I think. <laughs> and the, 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 the William F. Buckley Jr. <laughs> one of the things he says in that book about he's talking. I was. I here's one of the things that astonished me about that book was that one of the things I've always one of my little old my own little culminations was parents. Your children are not. I have. I have four adult children. Thank God they're fantastic kids. Your children are not your. They're not you distilled. They're not a fraction of you. They're their own people. You. There are, there's one thing you can do in raising them. You can't guarantee any outcomes, but you can give them the opportunity to be educated properly, and you can teach them manners. You can teach them manners. And one of the things Murray says in this book is, there's, nurture, there's no such thing as anyone who has manners anymore. The last people with true, what passes for manners now is saying, please and thank you. Ooh, yeah. Please and thank you. <laughs> Which, by the way, you can't even get when you go to the when you go to Seven yeah. Eleven. Have a good day. Is the is the max? Thank you for giving us your money. Yeah. Is not even on the table. <laughs> but he said William F. Buckley and his brother James were the last people in, in his circle, and it's quite a circle, who absolutely knew manners. Yeah. When someone comes into the room, you stand up. Yeah, and uh, just and the way that, and of course. We, we Orthodox Jews who, who live in this sort of medieval time war, like our children have way, like we have our, as part of our religious code, maintained a lot of the things that were traditionally associated with those sorts of, you know, graces. But these things, going back to the nihilism, nihilism attach, yeah. attacks those fine points as well. Yeah. And I even think it goes, it comes to, is, is, it includes the way people dress. Yeah, I drove past a Catholic church in my neighborhood. I live in Clifton, New Jersey, which is everyone who is not Jewish is Catholic, and right. it's far more Catholic. And I drove past on a Sunday, and I saw people coming out of church, and I was astonished. They looked like they were coming out of a football game. Yeah. <laughs> people, I thought, because the only my experience with church is either Princeton... Um, interfaith uh, opening ceremonies, uh, whatever you know, convocation. Back when I used to go into churches, um, but but that was like it. And TV, and I thought actually, I would, let me tell you something, Michael. I don't know if you have you ever been in a in a, in a court trial. I well, I've never. Thankfully, I've never been on the stand or anything. But I yes, I have been. I have been to see a couple. Yeah, on TV, the courtrooms were always. Filled with people. Yeah. And they're all dressed to the nines. Yeah. Courtrooms are almost all empty. 
Yeah. In fact, if the judge sees someone come in, everyone, like, because the judge is the only one looking at the door. Yeah. Like, you'll see the judge look, and then you why is somebody in here? What's going on? Who is that? Is that a reporter? Is yeah. That, you know, <laughs> are they coming to kill us? But, and they're, people, unless you, everyone's dressed like a slob, just like, just like at the, at the car wash. But these, when did that stop? When you were, when you were a kid, didn't you have some, Sunday best, didn't you? Use yes, to? of course. And it, you know, it, it, you could see it kind of cracking up a little bit then, but I think this is actually kind of the central point that conservatives are missing on, on political correctness and free speech. They, they believe, and I think this is the trap of PC as a matter of fact, PC sets out to destroy traditional standards of dress, of speech, of behavior. And so you've, you know, the squishes go along with that and they just say, okay, well, I'll, I'll do whatever the new leftist fashion is. But, but then even the more stalwart conservatives, they'll say, well, no, I oppose the new standard because I'm a free speech absolutist or I'm, you know, I, you should be able to do and say and wear whatever you want, whenever you want. They abandon standards altogether. And, and sadly, either one of those reactions is going to advance the purpose of political correctness. I think this is why the harder we fight, the more ground we cede. It wasn't so long ago that conservatives had standards. You know, the problem with political correctness is not that it says you, you should say certain things and you should say other things. It, it, it has a code of speech, but then so does chivalry, right? So does, so does all, all sorts of standards. The, the question is, what is the substance? What are we being told to say? Are we being told to be polite to one another or are we being told to deny and often invert reality? I mean, that, that seems to me the, the real poison and the, and the real power of political correctness. I lost you because I thought you were going to say the opposite, that we all understand that the content, yeah. calling black, white, calling men, women, yeah. calling something that isn't marriage, marriage. Yeah. That's the real poison and that matters far more yeah. than, than the style of the framing. But our point just now was about how it was not, was that it also matters how you say things and how, and the, and the quality of discourse and the, and literacy and, 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 and expression, clear expression. In other words, these sort of stuck up kind of William F. Buckley kind of conservatism as opposed to the, um, God, you know, God bless us, uh, uh, Alex Jones kind of conservatism, right? Where, you know, much more of a kind of a white collar, uh, uh, I mean, blue, I mean collar, blue, right? blue collar, uh, you know, a regular guy, which, look, I'm from, I'm from regular guy people, don't get me yeah. wrong. Um, so what, what, did I, what did I miss in the transition there? Because you were saying that the squishes say we should have no standards at all. Yes, I suppose, uh, you know, I, I'm, I am lumping Buckley and uh, Rush, for instance, or even throw Alex Jones in for that matter. Why not? I, I'm, I think the comparison is a little better, though, with, with Rush and Buckley. They spoke in very different ways. In some ways, I suppose they held different opinions, but, the, you know, they spoke sometimes to different audiences. But they were upholding a certain cultural standard. They, not, not necessarily in the way they dressed, although, you know, I don't think they were so far apart, but they were recognizing these things are good, these things are bad. And, uh, you know, if, if we're talking about some aspect of the American tradition, Buckley might express that with some kind of, you know, seven syllable word and some obscure reference to Baudelaire and Rush <laughs> might go a little more to the point and have a few jokes. <laughs> in it. But, but they're, they're both expressing the same 
ultimate standard of goodness, truth, and beauty. And, and what political correctness does is you look, there are people who are politically correct, who are on the left, who are shrieking, yelling horrible things in the streets, bringing their kids to kink parades, right? But then there are also people who show up to, I don't know, the, uh, the United Nations. There are people who show up to various sophisticated, wonderful groups. They're in the boardrooms of very high-powered organizations, but they still are pushing that same kind of leftist vision. And so in the same way that maybe Buckley and Rush would have a different affect, they, they still are, are both pushing a rather perverse idea of the good, the true, and the beautiful, or rather a, a denial of that, really what you might call an anti-standard. Is it, I, right. I, no. Yeah, no, right. Because, because, their, because their standard is, look, there's, who are we to say? This was a running joke my brother and I used to have when we were, when he followed in my footsteps and, 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 you know, also, also became religious, that, you would ultimately, when you would have these sort of ethical discussions with other Jewish people about whether uh, the, the, you know, the received tradition is, is valid and, and there would be these various sort of proof dialogues, and ultimately people, you know, you, you would get to a sort of an obvious moral point, like you use the examples of twerking children. Yeah. We're running out of those. Yeah. <laughs> We're running out of those, okay? The denominator is, is getting lower and lower. And ultimately, the other guy would say, well, who are you to say? Who are you to say? Yeah. And it, you, it, like that facile non-position is in theory a response, well, for it's never a response to anything, right? It's really a response to nothing. Yeah. And I remember, you know, again, during my early days of internet polemic, and I've probably done it on, even on, on Twitter, when someone has said, who are you to say? It said, Ron Coleman, American citizen. Yeah, nice to meet you. <laughs> That's who I am to say. I I have, and this actually Murray deals with this book also in, in his book also because he's he's addressing he, uh, fundamentally people coming from upper middle class families who have been taught this sort of you know abuses of First Amendment absolutism and every and every opinion is is of equal value. He said yeah. you you're going to go nowhere in life if because you've got to make decisions. Yeah. You've got to, and decisions are based on distinctions. Yeah. And if you don't, and, and that's, I mean, boy, if there's ever one word right now that has lost all meaning, it's distinction. Well, you know, actually, to go back to our pal Bill Buckley, who's f featured heavily in this conversation, Buckley was uh, on an episode of his Firing Line show speaking to Leo Churn in 1966. This is a, I'll play the Bill Buckley part. Well, uh, well, you see, Leo Churn, my guest today, I'll smash in his damn face. No. So <laughs> he's, on, he's on with Churn, and they're talking about McCarthyism, past, present, and future. And I think a lot of people were shocked to hear the idea of the future of McCarthyism. Buckley had written a book a dozen years prior defending McCarthy. And Leo Churn said, no, but Bill, what I don't understand about you is that the open society is so central to what we both hold dear. The op we need society to be as open as possible. And Buckley said, no, I don't think so. I, I do not want the society to be more open. I want the society in some ways to be closed. It's no coincidence, by the way, George Soros' foundation, it's called the Open Society Foundation, right? This is a very left-wing idea. And, and Buckley said, you know, I think that I'm something of an epistemological optimist. There it is. He says, that's the unfortunate phrase to mean, I think we can know some things. I think in, in any society, some things actually just have to be settled. And so I, I don't think that we really need to protect the ch sacred liberties of the Nazi or the communist. You know, we, we are, we are settling a, a few things in this society. And of course his guest was shocked and appalled by this. 
And, and I think today many conservatives would be shocked and appalled by this. Uh, you know, the, the ones yeah. who defend drag queen story hour, but some things really do need to be settled. You know, it's, I'll tell you another example of, 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 of that guest is um, we found ourselves with a couple of recent Alan Dershowitz books in our house. Yeah. And they, they look like he is basically either collecting old columns, which is fine. I learned when I was a freelance writer, if you, you should, everything should be sold three times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, or he's just talking into a dictaphone over like, after dinner for, because these, these look, these have the smell, as we say in Yiddish, the schmeck of, of, of desktop publishing. Yeah. You know what I mean? But he's so, he's just an industry unto himself. But here's a guy who, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago was, was gratefully accepting an award from the Atheists Association of, uh, or Alliance of America. Yeah. And he gets, and I read this speech that he, and he, mocking, mocking religion. And uh, this is, you know, we've won. We've won this cultural battle. And he, he, you know, he comes from a very well-known Orthodox Jewish family. Everyone, you know, in the Orthodox world knows, has stories about what they said about Avi Dershowitz, and, you know, when he was in yeshiva. And in the book now, he has all these references to Jewish tradition, yeah. which is a, not an uncommon thing when people reach their, their dotage. They all of a sudden, you know, the, 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 their childhood, you know, faith becomes more meaningful and, and, and real to them. But he's he's been the victim of cancel culture. He was yeah. smeared, and he has really suffered. And then and then he made the he compounded that mistake by being such a truth seeker, which is really what he is. He just he just didn't always succeed in finding the truth. But by defending Trump yeah. in the last couple of years, partially because of his obsession with defending Israel, which is his idea of a as a, as a person who left this tradition, they often, you know, Israel becomes their favorite team that they root for. That's fine. But you can tell in this book that he doesn't quite know what to do with himself Hmm. because he's Alan Dershowitz who fought for, he considers himself the free speech absolutist, but he's doubling back on the left, the, the, the being victimized by the left that he is one of, if you would name 10 people, in the middle of the 20th century who were most had most impact on helping to create that cultural atmosphere he'd have to be a serious contender for being on that but list. There, and the, but there, there's this problem that i think a lot of the free speech absolutists come up against which is language is intrinsically bounded and exclusive a, a, if a word refers to a thing, it will not refer to the opposite of that thing. And I mean, I suppose there actually are a few cases where there are quirks of language where there makes for confusing conversation. But the, the, when a baby says mama, he says mama to distinguish mommy from daddy, right? I mean, this is, this is why the left's war on pronouns is, is so important. And I think that the squishy conservatives dismiss this at, at their own peril. Right. Why, why die on this hill? Who why cares? Is this- yeah. Well, you know who cares? The left cares. The left spends a lot of time and energy and money on it. So something tells me they they recognize that words can smuggle in whole premises. Words can smuggle in a, a whole political vision. The other day, the NFL put out a video. They said the NFL or football, football is gay. Football <laughs> yeah. is not only gay, football is transgender. Now that's very strange because gay and transgender imply fairly different understandings of human nature. So it's strange that they can be both at the same time. And then football is this, football is that. Football is everything, they say. But football is not everything. Football is not baseball. 
A football is not the number 15. A football is not a cup of coffee. <laughs> but, not, you know, we actually do have to make distinctions in life. And uh, ultimately, we need to make distinctions about truth and falsehood and right and wrong and, and good and bad. And uh, the left is perfectly willing to do that in its destructive campaign. The right will not. So the right will only make procedural arguments. I defend free speech in the abstract. Well, what does that mean? Do you defend speech that would undermine speech? Do you defend a first amendment protection for fraud? Surely that's an exercise in speech, but it's speech that undermines speech. So, okay, so now you're limiting fraud. Okay. What about uh, direct threats? That is speech that undermines speech. What about obscenity. Now it's a little murkier, but I still believe that obscenity is speech that undermines speech. It's why it's not protected by the first amendment. So, okay. In theory. In theory. In theory. The Supreme Supreme Court really has, has left such a nub of of obscenity law. What they did under Rehnquist is so impossible to understand. It reached basically obscenity law reached the point where the only thing that's obscene, it, it elided into consent, issues of consent. Yeah. Of, of, of people being depicted, which, I mean, listen, you, that genie is not going back in the bottle. I mean, I mean, internet, forget it, you know, but. And you know, what's amazing too, is in the, in the 90s, you had a bipartisan consensus on the need to limit obscenity. There was the, uh, well, the Communications Decency Act for one. Now it's at the heart of a lot of uh, big tech battles. Alan Tipper Gore. Alan Tipper Gore. Alan Tipper Gore. Yeah. I mean, you even had, there was another bill. There was the Child Online Protection Act, COPA. And both of them passed with a Republican House, a Democrat Senate, a Democrat president, Alan Tipper right behind it. COPA never really went into effect and there were challenges and it kind of lost steam. Today, do you think there is any chance that you could pass something like the Communications Decency Act or or COPA, not, not, a, not a chance. And it's even more recent than all that. Do, you know, a dozen years ago, at the end of the Bush administration, Bush two, we sent a pornographer to federal prison for almost four years just for obscenity. The stuff he was putting out was apparently so vile that it wasn't for, that he possessed child pornography. It wasn't that he raped anybody. It was just obscenity. Now that would be considered, I think, unthinkable just a dozen years later. What are we going to do, Michael? What are we going to do, not just in our <laughs> remaining five minutes, but what are we going to do? So we do what we're doing, right? We fight the good fight. I fight it in the courts. You fight it on, uh, you know, the Michael Knowles show, and you've got your, you've got your book. I should, I, I should do a book, right? Everyone has a book. Everyone needs a book. It's <laughs> Although I'll tell you, I've written two books. No, that's not true. I've published two books. One is Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. It's got a lot of words in it. The first book, my magnum opus, was uh, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide uh, I know the punchline, but I'll let you give uh, it. Yes. It's, you know, the lines, it's been done before. Everything men know about women, the wit and wisdom of the German people. Well, mine was reasons great to vote Jewish for Jewish sports heroes. Uh, you didn't want to say it, but I'll say yeah, it. Yes, great Jewish sports heroes. And uh, so my book has an extensive bibliography, but 250 blank pages. I, I will tell you, the book with words, harder to put together, and frankly, no more edifying. You know, I, I felt I really got my thesis out the first time. But, but on this point of... <laughs> Of what, what, what should well, we no, do? You certainly didn't contradict yourself anywhere. In that yeah. And that's a remarkable <laughs> achievement in a work of that of 250 pages. I know. It's, and, and, you know, brevity being the soul of wit doesn't speak highly of, of this book, I suppose. But, but what well, that doesn't we, look like a particularly thick book. Come on. It's not. And by the way, I've got, I've got about a hundred pages of notes because I knew the libs would, would critique everything that I have to say in here because I, I am advancing 
a different sort of argument. I am, I am advancing the argument that conservatives need to recognize the limits of speech, that we need to recognize that language itself in, includes a sort of censorship. And, and we need to set those boundaries. And I think we should set them in accordance with the American tradition and in accordance with right reason and everything else. But we do need to set what those boundaries are. And, uh, you know, we will not be able to stop this cultural revolution if all we say is yes, yes, yes. You know, you see this with critical race theory. People say we need to expand the curriculum. Curricula cannot be expanded. There, there are only so many weeks. There are only, only so many books you can read in a, in a semester. And, and they're not learning anything. No. That's right. And, right. They're not learning anything. And, and even worse, if, if you read something like critical race theory, which is only the latest derivation of, of poisonous academic movements, a, a tenet of these movements is that objective reality does not exist or it's imperceptible or we can't know anything about it. If you teach a student that, not only are you not expanding his education, you're actually undermining it because education relies on the existence of reality and our ability to know something about it. So that would be a case where a sort of censorship, I guess you'd call it, a sort of cancel culture, a sort of limiting what's in the curriculum will actually expand one's education. And I know this sort of thought is anathema right now on the right, but I, people are beginning to realize whatever we've been doing for 30 years has not really worked. And I, I think even if people are skeptical of my solution, if we know what we're doing now is, is hurting us, uh, surely I think it's time to try something else. You know, it, in in almost conclusion, you know, what you were just saying about education and about reality. A couple of years ago, I remember sort of coming upon the realization, which means I instantly said it a million times, um, that probably the humanities department of all the state schools should be shut down. They should go back to doing agriculture and science, you know, because that you, that you can justify the taxpayers funding. Mm. But it's mostly out of these big state schools that the real garbage was coming out of. Yeah. Now the Ivy League has caught up big time. Yeah, of course. But even even a couple of years ago, I could still in good conscience yeah. give my annual 10 bucks to Princeton. <laughs> you know, and no, they, they were happy because they were, you know, so many of my classmates are giving much, much more than that. And yeah. I must... I'm, I'm the same percentage point as they are in terms of participation. That's somehow meaning to, meaningful to them. <laughs> but what, what we saw in the last year with COVID, or I guess now it's going to be a year, year and a half, yeah. was an attack on what we always thought of were the invulnerable sciences. In other words, you're not, we're not even going to have truth. We're not even going to have objective truth anymore yeah. in in math and biology and medicine and facebook and youtube are going to decide what we as grown adults supposedly in a free country can discuss as possible solutions to medical problems yeah this is that's not a i, I you know i don't know where this council of elders is where this cabal is that that arranges these things but if you wanted to be you know a, a, a um conspiracy theorist i mean the timing of that when all those words that you're talking about all those concepts yeah. that you're talking about truth and good and right and bad and evil test so the trust the science trust 
Yeah. Why would I trust the science? Science is to, has, has been a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> but for, but all the part, your answer might be, I, I don't even need you for this. Your answer might be, but Ron, the problem is how we define science. Yeah. And that's not a scientific de definition at all. It is a, it, that, that's a humanities definition. Right. Right. Well, of course. I mean, science refers properly understood, refers to knowledge. It's just all human knowledge. And we've reduced it so greatly to this merely empirical method of inquiry. And then we've, we've somehow perverted it again into whatever that egghead Mr. Fauci tells us, you know, whatever proclamation he makes. He, one man says, don't wear the masks. Then he says, you have to wear the masks. And you say, why aren't you wearing the masks? Don't, don't pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And, and you think, uh, well, if that's the science, I guess I'll have have to trust something else. Michael Knowles, you have truly justified your <laughs> reputation as a skinny boy. <laughs> I agree. I'm glad I could live up to it. Even now <laughs> being in Nashville, I'm glad that I still hold my reputation as a skinny boy. Skinny boy. Skinny <laughs> boy. Uh, anything, anything the world needs to know, because this is going to, this is going to, this is the big break you've been waiting for. This is great. Anything speechless. People on your, Go grab on it. On your website? It's yeah. on the website. We found out number one national bestseller. So you can go check it out. I'm glad people are reading it. Uh, you know, I'm glad. I thought people were only going to read my first book. So I'm glad people are reading this <laughs> now. Uh, you can get that. You can watch a Michael Knowles show at the Daily Wire. You can watch the book club at PragerU. You can watch Verdict with Ted Cruz, a podcast that I co-host. And I don't know, you can come watch me outside my bedroom window if you show up to my house in Nashville. I, I feel like you're subtweeting me here now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Michael, thanks so much. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.